0: as those guys were sharing you were hearing that the lord is doing things even that we don't necessarily see or realize the lord is doing things here in our families and in the world and so man that's an encouragement for us to to join in that work and um so i hope those prayers and those encouragements landed well landed softly yet also stirred you up to be a part of what god is doing So we're gonna jump right in today. It's been four months since we were in the book of Revelation, but we're gonna return today. We're gonna start off in Revelation chapter four. So you guys can go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Revelation four. And I wanna remind you of the blessing that Revelation one extends to us. It says, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this book, and blessed are the ones who hear it and keep them. So that's that's our prayer as we study through Revelation that this blessing would fall upon us as it transforms our hearts and minds. I also want to remind you guys of what Dan set forth when we began this series in Revelation. He said that the purpose of this book, the book of Revelation, is to stir the church, to stir us toward an enduring hope and holiness in our savior jesus christ so that we might overcome for the true followers of jesus his faithful witnesses there is incredible hope in the fact that the deepest difficulties of this life will disappear when jesus has his day you guys believe that should i say it again For the true followers of Jesus Christ, there's incredible hope in the fact that the deepest difficulties of this life will disappear when Jesus has his day. And there's incredible holiness for us to pursue as we navigate this life as exiles, as strangers in this world, as faithful witnesses of Christ. Incredible holiness for us to pursue. And so the primary way that Revelation accomplishes this stirring is that it paints a picture of one main theme. And the primary theme is that all of life, all of history, is advancing, it's snowballing towards this final unveiling act. The depths of evil and violence that have been lurking in the hearts of mankind are at some point going to be unleashed upon this earth. And as that happens, as humanity gets what it really wants, because that's what that is, as humanity gets what it wants, the majesty and the holiness of Christ is going to radiate in perfect justice as he rescues his people and vindicates his name. That's the main theme that Revelation paints on a portrait of all these literary symbols and images and all of that is to say that we don't have time to waste. The death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ have set into motion a cosmic sequence of events that cannot be stopped. You guys believe that? Since Jesus rose from the dead, there is an advancement towards redemption that cannot be stopped. And so as we've seen already, just to set the table to bring us back into Revelation, as we've seen already in chapter 1, it's the revelation of the risen Jesus to the Apostle John that was given to warn us of all these things that are to come, the incredible difficulties that will take place. And everything that we're going to grapple with in the rest of Revelation is rooted in the reality of the resurrection of Christ. The one who died is now alive forevermore, and he holds the keys to death and hell. And he's coming back. You guys believe that? He's coming back. And so as we moved through chapters 2 and 3, the primary focus was the church on earth. And we saw that Jesus is present among his lampstands. He is here, right? As he's present among the lampstands, he's holding the church in his hand. And we saw specific details of actual historic churches, the seven churches in history, that are also largely broadly more applicable to the universal church. each one of those churches that Jesus addressed in Revelation 2 and 3, we see there is a warning or a commendation paired with a reward for those who who follow through faithfully, who overcome in Christ, right? But today as we transition into chapter 4, the focus is going to shift from earth to heaven. And I want to briefly point out not to parse out end times systems, But chapter 4 is not a chronological step after chapters 2 and 3, but it's actually a picture of what's happening in heaven while we're on earth, and it's overlaid over top during this time period that is the latter days between Christ's first and second coming, between his resurrection and his return. So we have to see these things as happening simultaneously, okay? If you have more questions about that, we can talk about it offline. But these things, chapters 2, 3, and 4, are happening in the same time period. And so what we're going to see today in chapter 4 is God's eternal glory and surpassing worth as the creator of all things. This is going to set the stage for the rest of the book of Revelation. It's going to give the theological foundation for the judgments that will occur. But it's also going to set a a foundation for us to receive consolation and a framework for us to process what it means to patiently endure suffering the revelation of john's vision here in chapters 4 and 5 is intended to help you grow in your role as a worshiper it's intended to give you consolation so let's read the text together open up your bibles revelation 4 Starting in verse 1, I'm going to read the whole chapter. John writes, After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. with six wings are full of eyes all around and within and day and night they never cease to say holy 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 is the lord god almighty who was and is and is to come whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who's seated on the throne who lives forever and ever The 24 elders fall down before him who's seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, Lord, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. let's dive right in as we begin to unpack this vision in Revelation 4 and its significance for us the first thing that we have to notice and it's a simple point so obvious that the heavenly throne is occupied the heavenly throne is occupied the living one the resurrected Christ speaks again to John with his mighty trumpet-like voice and he beckons John to come gaze into heaven's throne room at once John's in the spirit again and behold he sees the throne now I've never been in a throne room before but I have been to Harrisburg and maybe some of you guys have been to Harrisburg but how many of you have been in a building like Harrisburg State Capitol maybe City Hall maybe the White House maybe you've traveled to Europe and you've seen some of the incredible cathedrals has anybody been to any building like that raise your hand if you have yeah when you walk into a building like that there's something that happens within you right it stirs up awe and adoration within you when you see incredible architecture. And those are man-made, temporal, easily destructible buildings, right? Yet they still stir up within us this awe. And that's why there's been so much money spent in creating them like that, to stir up that awe within us. But can you imagine what John must have felt as he gazes into the heavenly throne room? Think about that but right away we see that it's not the design and the decor of the throne room that strikes him it's not the architecture it's the one on the throne the divine nature and the eternal power of that one on the throne that grips his attention the heavenly throne room is not just beautiful but the heavenly throne is occupied It's not up for grabs. It's essential for us to realize who is on that throne. Am I right? As this vision unfolds with stunning literary illustration, it becomes obvious that John is beholding the same thing that prophets of old had witnessed. He's beholding the same one that was described in ancient prophecy after prophecy throughout hundreds of years. And as the details appear before his eyes in that moment, he begins calling to mind all these bits and pieces of all this Old Testament imagery so that we get sort of this blended uh, smoothie, if you will, of all these Old Testament prophetic images put together in what John's seeing. What he sees and the way that he describes it make it clear that the one seated on the throne is none other than the God of Abraham, the Ancient of Days, the Holy One of Israel, Yahweh. John sees the the fiery and the gleaming appearance of jasper and carnelian and emerald. Those are classic Old Testament images of the glory and the majesty of God. He hears the crashing thunder. Have you ever been in a really severe thunderstorm? Anybody? The power that you feel when the thunder crashes. John's beholding that before the throne. That takes us back to Moses' mountaintop encounter with God in Exodus 19. The burning torches of fire before the throne represent God's holy holy all-consuming unadulterated presence and that references the tabernacle layout with the torches of fire in exodus 27 and zechariah's vision in zechariah 4. all these images are coming together before john's eyes but above all what he sees bears striking resemblance to the image that Daniel had of the Ancient of Days upon the throne in Daniel 7. And all of this imagery is intended to communicate that there is no mistake, this is the God of Israel on the throne that has been prophesied about from, from of old. There's no mistake. And it's this one on the throne that is the foundation for all of the eschatological events that are going to unfold as we'll read throughout Revelation. But the one on the throne is also the basis for any comfort that we can receive while we patiently endure. The heavenly throne is occupied by the God of Israel, Yahweh, Think about how this vision of reality, that God is on the throne, would have impacted John in that moment. He was physically exiled on the island of Patmos. He was separated from his community, and he was most likely bound in chains. He was enduring physical persecution for his testimony about Jesus. if there's anybody who would have had a good theology of suffering it would have been john am i right he walked beside jesus he saw him hanging on the cross he loved jesus they were friends if anybody had the good theology it was john but the temptation even for those with the best theology of suffering when you endure the actual suffering you feel that god is distant You feel that he's not aware of what's going on, right? That's the temptation for us. That's the reality that we face. For John to see his God on the throne while he's enduring persecution is an incredible consolation. Think about Stephen in Acts chapter 7. He's being stoned. He's being murdered because of his testimony about Jesus. And as he receives those blows in the final moments of his life, God gives him a glimpse glimpse into heaven. And what does he see? The same thing. He sees the Lord on his throne and Jesus standing at his right hand. And in that moment, oh, it's okay. He's still ruling. He sees me. He knows what I'm enduring for his name. And he's still ruling. And he's keeping account of what is happening. How many of you have felt or even right now feel that life is out of control? How many of you feel that you're just one wave from being submerged completely and you can't do anything to stop life? You know, even for those of you who don't feel that way, who feel in control, the reality is you're just one breath away from being there. It's not just a religious cliche. As much as it feels like it, it's not to say that God is in control and he's ruling on his throne no matter what you are experiencing. It's a rock solid. And this is where Millie's word lines right up with where the Lord led me. The reality that God is occupying the heavenly throne right now is a soul anchoring foundation for us to endure, am I right? You guys agree with that? It's a soul anchoring foundation. It's not a cliche. It's not just a proposition. It is the reality that we can anchor our souls in the fact that God is occupying the throne and he's aware of what's happening. And all that time he's watching, he's directing, he's correcting, and he's redeeming all things for the vindication of his people and his name. For those who love God, And are called according to his purpose. What? All things what? For those who love God and are called according to his purpose. I know you guys know this. All things work together for good. Right? For his glory and for our good. It is so important for us to come back again and again to what John saw in that moment, that God is ruling right now. He's occupying the heavenly throne, and that's where we can find our consolation. In order for us to endure this life with all of its pressures for the remainder of our time here in the wilderness, we we must cling to God's sovereignty We must cling to that vision of him on the throne, ruling and reigning. But now there's a second significant piece of John's throne room vision that we have to note. Moving on in the chapter. And that is that the heavenly authorities are assembled. Look at verse 4. It says, around the throne were 24 thrones. And seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. Now skip down to the second half of verse 6. Around the throne on each side were four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first one like a lion, the second like an ox, the third like the face of a man, and the fourth like an eagle in flight. The big question that everybody wants to know is who in the world are the 24 elders? Why are there 24? What are the living creatures and why are there four? Well, honestly guys, we don't have time to go through all of the data that speaks to who they might be, but I'm gonna give you the short answer. We don't know who the 24 elders are and we don't really know what the living creatures are, but there's good biblical evidence And I can give you tons of podcasts and videos and books to read about this. That there is, in some way, the representation of redeemed people from both the Old Covenant and the New, the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 apostles, somehow making up this group of 24. But there's also the reality that there may be some angelic representation of each one of those groups. Are they angels? Maybe. Maybe. Are they glorified saints? Maybe. Are they both? Maybe. But no matter which way you land on that, the implications are the same. These are authorities in heaven. They are ruling on thrones. They're not in fold-up chairs in the background. They are on thrones around the throne of Yahweh. They hold something of his authority as they're around him. And the four living creatures... Are they just representative of all creation? Maybe. Are they the cherubim, the throne guardians that have been depicted through the Old Testament? Maybe, probably. Is there some ancient astrological connection here? Maybe. There's good biblical data and and there's lots of things that we could study, but no matter which way you land on that, the fact is these are four incredibly powerful beings that do represent the four corners of the entire universe around the throne of god guarding protecting and worshiping and so what we see is that the the highest of powers other than god himself are assembled around the throne here and we are represented in that group if you look back in revelation 2 and 3 the white garments and the thrones are a promise of Jesus held out to his saints who endure. A seat on his throne with him is a promise of Jesus held out to those saints who endure. So we can we can believe that there is something here for us. We are included in that group around the throne, but we don't know who the 24 are. We don't know, we don't exactly know. But no matter where we land on that, the heavenly authorities are assembled around the throne and they're not there for a lunch or a birthday party or anything like that, what we see when we line up this vision with Daniel 7 is that these thrones are established in judgment of evil. The heavenly authorities are assembled around Yahweh as he brings a covenant lawsuit against the people who have broken the covenant that he made with them. This is a sobering picture. They are around him, ready to do his bidding and carry out whatever he wills. But there's one detail that I skipped over in verse three. The one who sat on the throne had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian And around the throne was a rainbow. That takes us back to Genesis chapter 9. This God who's on the throne, who is setting up his court to judge those who broke his covenant, is encircled by the symbol of his covenant forevermore to always redeem a remnant from whatever judgment he issues upon the world. And not just a half rainbow. We only see half of it, right, usually? He's encircled with the sign of his covenant to redeem. That gives us incredible hope in this moment of sober judgment that he has promised to redeem and he will. The the heavenly authorities are assembled around the throne. As God occupies that throne, But there's this incredible, surprising vibe, so to speak, in the throne room as this is taking place. You would think, man, this is a sobering, sobering court throne room scene. Yet what do we see but worship? The vibe of this courtroom is worship. The heavenly response is worship. Worship. And this is going to be a consistent theme through the book of Revelation. As the prophecies and the apocalyptic visions unfold with stark scenes of violence and persecution and suffering and judgment, the saints and the heavenly host are enraptured in worship. They're worshiping the righteous judge, and they're specifically worshiping through song there's actually at least 15 different hymns throughout the book of revelation and there's probably more songs written today from the book of revelation than any other book what these hymns do for us the scene of worship in the heavenly courtroom is it establishes for us a liturgy it establishes a pattern for us to follow just like our call to worship establishes a pattern for us to walk through and rehearse the gospel, our liturgy to worship God. This worship in the throne room establishes a liturgy or framework for us to process and endure suffering in this life. You know, Raise a Hallelujah is not just a popular contemporary song. It is actually part of this heavenly liturgy. I raise a hallelujah... My weapon is a melody. When I sing praises to God, heaven comes to fight for me. The heavenly response to all that has happened and all that will happen is worship. Look at verse 8. The four living creatures never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever those living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who's seated on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders then fall down before him who's seated on the throne and they worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before his throne and they say, Worthy are you, Lord, for you've created all things and by your will they existed and were created. The heavenly host cannot contain It's praise and worship of the Lord Almighty. There's continual adoration happening. And notice that the living creatures and the elders actually work in tandem. There's a corporate element of this worship. Whenever the living creatures declare God's holiness... Whenever they bring glory and honor and thanksgiving to the one on the throne, the elders then erupt in humble praise and they fall down before the throne. They cast down their crowns and they cry worthy. This is not just rote repetition. There's something about the living creatures crying out holy, holy, holy that actually stirs up within the elders this need to worship so that they can't stay seated. You know, this is not like, many of you have been in this situation where there's an obligatory standing ovation and one person begins to stand and then another one begins to stand and you're like, I guess I gotta stand here or I look like a punk. That's not what's happening here. That is not what's happening here. What's happening is a deep soul connection in the unity of God's Spirit, where created beings are fully aligned and perfectly united within their created purpose. You and I were designed this way by God. And even now, we have frameworks and we have a glimpse of this, even right now, right? How many of you have been around a person when they laugh? It's contagious and you can't help but laugh i love to watch funny movies with caitlin's dad because everything is 10 times funnier when he laughs how many of you have been around a person that is so deeply grieved or even tears of joy but their tears are contagious and you catch that and you begin crying You know, every time I watch one of those surprise soldier homecoming videos, I cry every time, and there are people I don't even know. Even as I was writing this and thinking about it, I started to tear up. I don't know why I can't explain it, but there's this deep soul connection. We were created to be deeply empathic beings that are united together and with the capacity to deeply feel things, so that we would be enraptured and satisfied and fully enjoying our creator that's how god wired us did you know that that is one of the main reasons we have corporate worship gatherings that is why online church can never ever take the place of this if you type haha on the screen it does not Communicate the same thing as being with a person and sharing in their emotions. When we gather together in worship and we're visibly moved by our God, it stirs up within the other people a desire to worship. When I hear somebody shout hallelujah, it excites me. When I see someone raising their hands, I, I get excited. When we clap together, it stirs up within me an eagerness to cheer for our amazing God. Does anybody think that it's weird that a building full of 70,000, 100,000 people can simultaneously erupt in deafening praise and shouts of joy and dancing when a grown man catches a ball? In the moment, we don't think it's weird because we were wired to react that way. The thing that's weird when you step back and think about it are all the wrongly placed objects of that reality. It's not weird that we act that way because God made us to act that way in worship of him. When your affections and your hopes are set upon someone or something and they fulfill your hope you cannot contain the joy that wells up within you am i right your entire being is filled with joy and praise and all other sorts of feelings and those are contagious to the people around you whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who's seated on the throne the elders fall down and worship but why why are they worshiping this is so plain it's so simple but it's the foundation for everything in the book of Revelation it's the foundation for the it's the reasoning that God can set forth this lawsuit it's the reason that we can worship him verse 11 why is he worthy why is he holy Because he created all things, and by his will, they existed and were created. It's so simple. Yet we forget it all the time. You did not create yourself. The one seated on the throne is the eternal creator. He's the one who was and is and is to come forever. And with that phrase, is to come, it also means he is coming back. It doesn't just mean he's existing forever. He is coming back. He's the one who lives forever and ever. Notice the eternity that is repeated in this vision. He lives forever and ever. And he decided to create us. There was no one there to coerce him or compel him or convince him to create. He decided to create in his own good pleasure. All things are from him and through him and to him. And this is what theologians call the creator-creature distinction. Just by the very fact that he has existed eternally and he decided to create puts him in a separate category forever. He is the only one worthy to rule on the throne. He's the only one worthy of glory and honor and power and thanksgiving. And he alone is entitled to decide what's right and what's wrong. So as we go through the rest of Revelation, we have to frame it through this creator-creature distinction. He is the creator, we are the creature. His will goes, not mine. His justice stands, not mine. it's easy when we think about these things and life is going well to join in that heavenly worship when things line up the way that you hope they will it's natural for us to erupt in praise and joy right but the message of revelation is that the experience of god's people until christ returns will again and again, be difficult and painful, even excruciating. That's why he gave us these warnings, right? So that we're not caught off guard. The fact that God is sovereignly ruling on his throne doesn't mean that we'll make it through life without pain. So, what do we do when it feels like you're on the losing team? To go back to the analogy, what do they do in a stadium when your team is losing? yeah they put up a sign that says get louder clap your hands come on there's a discipline happening there when your team's losing you you don't want to be excited right there's a spiritual discipline when you feel like you're losing the battle when you feel like you're being crushed there's a discipline that has to take place and that's where we gather together and we say come on get louder let's sing those praises let's worship even though i don't feel like it you know many of us just often don't feel like worshiping am i right many of us don't feel like getting out of bed many days what do you do in those moments you know god is on the throne but you just feel like you cannot worship right now oh that's where our high priest comes in and lifts the burden. Our great high priest, Jesus Christ. As we talked about in the call to worship this morning, he has walked this path before us. He is walking with us still, turning tragedy into triumph, right? And agony into praise. The fact is that we cannot just flip a switch and decide, I'm going to feel great. I'm going to feel joyful. No, this is why the gathered people of God are so essential, because it is only through beholding God as he really is that we can come out of that. He has to lift us out of it. And how does he do that? He gives us his spirit, right? He speaks through people. He gives words to people that then share it with his people unique manifestations of His spirit for the common good and as we encounter God in all these different ways we're beholding who he is we're beholding the fact that he is holy he is watching he is noticing me he is paying attention and he loves me and it's our great high priest Jesus that that purchased and won all of this for us right he poured out his spirit for us for these moments He is the one that bore our pain in His own body, right? And He defeated the grave. He overcame. And so my message to you is not that we have to sing more, pray more, sing louder, read the Bible more. Although all of those things are good. The message is that we have to behold God as He really is. We have to behold God as He is on His throne, ruling with His heavenly authorities authorities gathered around Him, guiding and directing and keeping track of everything that you experience. And so whether you feel like worshiping today or you feel like staying in bed, you're casting yourself on your great high priest and you're calling out to him to lift that burden, to enable you to praise to fill you with the joy of his Holy Spirit as you behold who he really is. The heavenly throne is occupied. The heavenly authorities are assembled and the heavenly response is worship. Question is, are you going to join in that worship or are you going to run away? I'm going to ask the music team to come up We're gonna have communion. I just wanna pray over you guys as the musicians come. My heart is, is going out to those who are in that category of I know this stuff to be true. I know it to be true, but I just I just don't feel it. I want to pray for you specifically. Lord Jesus, we come today to join in the song that has been sung long before our lifetime. Lord, we come in to join the heavenly worship that is happening right now. But Lord, many of us are feeling the weakness. We're feeling the pressures of this life pressing down on us. And Lord, we need your Spirit's help. We need you to unveil yourself before us that we may behold you in your beauty, in the splendor of your majesty. Lord, in order for us to come out of that depth of despair, we cannot just pull ourselves up by the bootstraps, Lord, but we need your Spirit to do it. And Lord, as a church, we need to be strengthened in that that corporate partnership that's taking place, the lifting our brother and lifting our sister and ministering, rehearsing the truth of who you are on your throne. Lord, I pray that we would be strengthened in that, that we would be unified as a church. As Dan talked about last week, the joy that you hold out for us Is something that you long to see functioning in our lives. It's not something that is unachievable, but it's something that you've given to us, Lord. You long to see your people rejoicing in you. So Spirit of God, I pray for those who feel that the waves are crashing over and they are just barely keeping their nose above the the sea level. Lord, I pray for them. Holy Spirit, would you lift them? Lift their heads, Lord. Be their anchor. Be their shield. And Lord, as we continue to study through this book of Revelation, I pray that it would stir us up to hope and holiness. That it would stir us up to take the joy that you've given to us to those around us. That joy isn't complete until it's expressed, Lord. I pray that we would be filled with joy as we behold you For who you really are, the one who rules on the throne. I'm gonna ask you guys to go ahead and come on forward to receive the communion elements and then return to your seats. And again, I encourage you, if you are not following Jesus, if you're not trusting in Jesus, just sit out communion. This is for his people who have devoted themselves in faith to his beautiful atoning sacrifice. And so would you guys come receive the elements and we're going to take them together Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples. And he said, take, eat, this is my body. Let's eat the bread together. jesus took a cup and when he had given thanks he gave it to them saying drink of it all of you for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins and i tell you that i will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when i drink it new with you in my father's kingdom let's drink it together
1: We're gonna sing this last song. I'm hoping those on Urgic Street and Cottage Street don't just hear my voice. Let's sing like, let's channel those 24 elders. Let's sing this song. Let's sing as if we need heaven to hear us. This is a newer song, so let's let's learn it. Let's not be afraid to belt it out.
0: I invite you guys, if you need prayer, if you're trying to stay afloat and you feel out of control, please receive prayer for that before you leave. If you're feeling the words that Millie shared earlier, please receive prayer for that. This is one of the ways that our high priest ministers to us is through his people. So please receive that prayer before you leave. But I want to declare the benediction from Jude Verses 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory and majesty and dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Grace and peace. You guys are dismissed.